0: Debbie and I met about um, right a year or so ago when we did a Master Gardening program together. So we never, you know, we didn't wow. know each other before then and we become good friends and Debbie thought this might be something that, that I would enjoy. Carol is a voracious reader <laughs> and so I thought this would be great. <laughs> <laughs> the, problem, the problem is, I just was telling these two ladies, is that I'm in the middle of reading um, Hamilton. Which is
1: a challenge oh, as oh, well. Yeah. It's got a 1,500-page book. So I've got my
0: work that out. Wow. <laughs>
1: wow. Everybody else has introduced. You won't introduce yourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You. Well, I did the last class. but uh, My name is Mike Laman. I've been in the parish since uh, 1987. I've been on every council oh, meeting, wow. every uh, oh. uh, uh,
2: parish uh, committee and what I've ended up uh, doing is uh, I'm a, I'm a uh, prison minister right now and I also do the hospital ministry so
1: these uh, classes that Robert put together I thought were very interesting so I, I'm a lover of uh, classic history mm-hmm.
2: as well as classic literature and so
1: I took advantage of it Is everybody... Just welcome again everybody. Has everybody
0: had some of the... Should I pass this around? Susan's little muffins. Everybody? There's muffins and
1: coffee. Thank you. Thank you. you good, okay. (laughs) Um, Let's see, a couple of things. Just for a minute for those of you who are here for the first time we were going to start we, last year Jared started this reading group and was doing Moby Dick and, and um, I happen to believe that Moby Dick is, uh, is in lots of ways prophetic of things in America very Protestant I, um, I wrote an article that it's actually in the copy that we'll get when we get it from Ignatius um, it's one of the essays in the back it would be interesting to hear what you think about it when we get there, but um, I wanted to pick it up because I, I wasn't sure that um, that, that could bring out everything that is there, and, and it was an excuse for me to get involved, and I did, and I'm really glad that I did. It's been a great gift to me. But the purpose of the course was to go, was to go back You all know from the sentence on the the monitor, to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. And my claim was that uh, most of these, all of these books in some ways, reveal something of Christ in the natural order. And that was important to me because the call of our church is to bring faith and reason together, and so often we don't. Um, After the Protestant Reformation, nature gets blasted and I think in America most Catholics are in some ways Protestantized. I mean we, we don't look to nature anymore and, and we're not encouraged to by the sciences. Not in the right. Sciences are quantitative. They, they back out of nature. Poets take us back into it. The Logos is present. Christ is present in nature so there's something going on in nature that's meant to help us in our faith. We're supposed to bring them together. So the purpose of the class was to go back to that natural order um, and look at those works in which he was being revealed in some ways. So it was to learn to see Christ in some ways that we don't, in the hope that that would strengthen the faith of all of us. So that's why we came together. We did the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and the Divine Comedy. We ended on the Divine Comedy. And those of you who did it know that that in some ways it, it's amazingly written for us because Dante's writing, when, um, when Florence first comes into existence and Florence is the the prototype, the first kind of commercial regime of the modern world. Not Athens. Athens was the commercial regime of the ancient world. Florence was the prototype of America. We're a commercial republic. So is Florence. So what he was revealing in, in hell and purgatory and heaven was ourselves. Immediately. There's not anything that's going on in the Divine Comedy that doesn't deal with business and the effects of of business mind and the way we do things, Um, and struggles between church and state, which are still our struggles today. So it was deeply prophetic because it had so much to say to us as modern Americans. That's where we left off. We were going to pick up with Shakespeare, um, and interestingly, Shakespeare writes when the, the home and early empire has collapsed and, he, and the modern nations are emerging. So Shakespeare had this extraordinary understanding of all the modern nation states, more than anybody, better than anybody, because he knew that classical world. He wrote um, plays on every major regime in the West, and I'll leave it at that when we get to Shakespeare, I'll make that clear. But the two plays we were going to start with are Merchant of Venice and Othello, and both of them are set in Venice. Venice along with Florence was a prototype of the commercial regime, in fact, probably more than Venice, or Florence because Venice was situated close to the ocean, so it was a thriving commercial republic. What's at the heart of that play is um, venture capitalism. and. Um, Bassanio wants to woo Portia and he takes out a loan from his friend Antonio. Antonio can't get it to so he has to take a loan from Shylock and he puts his life at risk. I don't want to go into it but at the center of that play is, a, is an act of venture capitalism and loaning and contract. So Shakespeare's looking at the commercial regime in some ways far more directly than Dante is. So we're going to look at Merchant of Venice that's us. He's going to go to the heart of who, what's in the American psyche that most Americans don't understand. Shakespeare's going right to it. Othello the, the, is set in Venice, but it's the tragic aspect that has to do with a, a husband and wife. And if you know Othello, you know Othello's going to kill his wife. So both plays will give us the completeness of us as, as people who are raised in a commercial regime and formed by it whether we know it or not. And then we'll go on to do Hamlet and Wintersdale. Hamlet is his treatment of a Protestant problem. It, it's, it, it shows how amazing um, his mind was. Wintersdale, I think, is the greatest work that he did because it's about forgiveness. It, it, in my mind, goes way past anything Dante did. And then we're into Melville and Faulkner. So that's our work. That's what we're going to do. As we reach the end of last season, lots of people came in and they were regretting that they didn't start because they came in late so what I did was start early to go back to the Iliad and that's what I was going to do and then when we got started I thought I can't do this we have to do the Odyssey because they go together so you're stuck so we're doing the Iliad and the Odyssey as soon as we're done with the Odyssey we start Shakespeare and then we're off in the modern world so that's what we're doing So um, we start each each session, I've got to get around class because I don't like the word here, but each meeting, um, with, a, with a prayer and then we read a lyric poem. And the reason for the lyrics, as you all know, is, is to experience the musical aspect of what we're doing because almost all the writers that we're reading are poets. The ancient epics were put to music, so there's a musical element we don't hear in our translations. But it's, it's absolutely crucial to, to know that because music quiets our minds. So while poetry is sharpening our minds to see something, it's also supporting that critical effort with music, with a harmony. So poetry can arouse feelings, make us feel things that certainly a thesis can't, because the thesis is entirely in our heads. So we start with lyrics, and all of the lyrics One of the other reasons for wanting to do them is because it it also helps make... They also make clear Christ's presence in ways that we don't see. Because all of the lyrics have to do with that. Because I really want people to see that Christ is far more present than we realize all around us. And poets are the ones who help us open our eyes to see it. So that's what we're doing. Um, Last time I asked if um, ordinarily I ask for your prayers, uh, but I wanted to get going... But tonight, I'd, or I mean today, I'd like to get back to that. So we're going to say a prayer, and then we'll do the poems and get into the epic. Um, um, would anybody is at, like to ask for prayers? For um, It's been a wonderful experience for me truly doing this, because um, it, it, it's, um, the prayers that you've asked for make it clear that all of us carry sorrows and burdens and strugglings with our friends and our families and we could pray for each other was a certainly a great blessing for me so please feel free to ask for prayers. Would any of you like to include I'm going to say the prayer in a minute. Would any of you like to include anybody in our prayers this morning? Um,
0: I just learned that a very dear friend of ours, son, is really, really struggling with some abuse. he is currently in a facility. Um, in he's struggling
1: from abuse.
0: Yes, he's abusing. He's alcohol. abusing. He's abusing. Okay. He's, yeah. He's yeah. abusing alcohol. is what he's abusing. And um, so my prayer is for him, but also for his parents. They are. Str- they. I think they're having almost a harder time. Devastated. They're absolutely yeah. devastated. And um, it's very very. difficult.
1: What's his name? His name is Michael. Michael.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: their and their name is Lisa and Jeff. I'll, his Stop name is Michael. Michael. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Because and your son's name is Daniel. No,
0: no, 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 no. No, Matthew.
1: I know. I'm just because we've been praying for your son for. Oh, and my your, son Matthew.
0: Matthew, sorry, yes, Matthew. Matthew. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and there's, thank you all, because there's there's. Not been the resolution that we were really praying for, but there has been some resolution, and it's a good one. Good, I'm glad. Really glad. So thank you all for for that for Matthew. This is these these are family friends, and um, they we just learned this a couple days
1: ago. Anybody else? I do. I (coughs) have to pray for my daughter
0: Darlene. 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 She um, has an infection on her leg. She's been to the doctor. times we've had on four different antibiotics um, <clears throat> and it's uh, s- still seems to be there but I'm hoping this last one helps I'm
1: very concerned and I, I uh, Darlene okay yeah. for my husband
0: Bill who's battling one
1: case. oh Bill okay thanks let's start in the name of the <coughs> Father Son the Holy Spirit Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass. We carry your life within us. Um, Heal us all, please, heal us. Um, Help us to give um, ourselves to to that part of us that's you within us so that it can be nurtured and grow. You call us to holiness. Help each of us to do that ask a special blessing for us in this work together that whatever these poets uh, um, have to show us um, that we receive it and more importantly um, anything that we learn that helps us um, to grow certainly to deepen our faith that we take out it into the world and make it real. I um, ask a special prayer for um, Michael, um, give him the help that he needs. Um, Let the difficulties that he and his parents are having become an occasion for becoming stronger in their faith. Um, You allow us these things often. Um, You don't do them. You make a place for them so that we can not take things for granted, learn to grow and turn to you, watch over them, keep them well. Sue, I'm sorry, it was um, Darlene?
0: Oh, Kathy, I'm Kathy. Sorry. My name's Kathy. Yeah, sorry. That's my daughter,
1: Darlene. (laughs) Darlene. Um, uh, Watch over Darlene, help her to get um, um, the medical care that um, she needs. Um, Ask for a blessing on Laura um, and Carrie and Amy. Continue to bless, sorry, Daniel, Matthew, Matthew, oh, Matthew. Matthew. sorry, you guys, yeah, Matthew okay. um, and his wife. Um, be with us all. Um, help us to grow in your peace. Bill. Bill.
0: Mm-hmm. Bill. Bill. Oh, sorry. Bill.
1: Um, oh, yeah, and please be with Bill. Um, If it's possible that this be cured, let a cure be given. Um, Let your will be done and um, whatever goes on. Um, um, Help us to take some consolation that you you never let these crosses be offered to us um, without offering yourself as a way of growing in the love that you ask us all to come to. Let your peace be with us through the rest of this day and until we meet again. Amen. Amen. Okay, can we... Last time, uh, ordinarily we only do one lyric, but um, because there were so many new people, I wanted to do two lyrics just just (laughs) to prove... (laughs) that Christ is present in this poetry. So I took two very, very different poems. They couldn't be more different. One from the 19th century and one that's contemporary, just to show you two two poets who are revealing Christ in um, some way. Um, My hope was that you'd see that two... Do I have them? Which one's on it? Right? Supernatural Love and the Wind Hover. Mm-hmm. Um. The other reason for choosing these poems was that <coughs> Both of them deal with very ordinary experiences. Very, very ordinary experiences. And the the claim that I wanted to make, and, and I think you'll see it as we go along with each one of the lyrics that we read, that every lyric is about a very ordinary thing. It's the sort of thing that makes up events of our lives, and we don't even see it. We don't have a clue that Christ is there. But if these poets are right, it means we should... One of the things I should have included in our prayer is that we op- our eyes be opened because he's always there, always. The question is, do we see them? So the other reason for doing it is they take very ordinary experiences and show that he's at work. If we can learn to see it there, then hopefully we can be more trusting, believing that he's there all the time, even if we don't see it. So the two poems, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Wind Hover, and um, Gertrude um, Schnackenberg. Um, remember the wind hover is about a bird it's it's um, fly. It, it's, it, it's put in the Italian sonnet an octave and followed by a sestet there's eight lines and then six lines In the octave <coughs> Hopkins is recalling the moment early in the morning when he came out and he saw the wind hover flying in the sky and then there was that moment when the wind hover stops and, and you, if you know anything about it, birds use the wind to help them in their flight. When a bird stops, you'd expect him to fall because his wings aren't going. He's, he's not moving himself. So this one moment when the wind hovers suddenly, catches the wind as if for a second he masters it. He just masters it. And then in that moment, something happens. A buckling. He describes it as a buckling. And a buckling has two different meanings. As you know, it means um, buckling, like a belt pulling things together. So he pulls all of these powers together. But buckling also means crumbling, collapse. So in that moment, he has an image of Christ on the cross. It's that moment when Christ masters nature, goes to nature, gives himself to it, and buckles, dies. And then is risen again, as you know. After the, recalling the experience in the octave, in the sestet, he reflects on it. That's the nature of the Italian sonnet. He'll give an experience, whoever's writing it, whoever used Frost uses the Italian sonnet in some of his poems. In the sestet, he will reflect on it. And in that reflection, he'll say, there's no wonder in this, it's all around us. When a farmer plows his earth, you know that the earth is clay, it's gooey and gummy. But as he plows it, it gets finer and finer, more refined, and when it does, it shines. A light comes out of it. So he says, in the most ordinary thing, like a farmer plowing, the, the last place you'd expect to find Christ, there he is. There it is again. And then finally, he, he reveals it in a fire going out. And you know that when a fire first starts, it's raging. But it reaches that point where um, the, the fire... It's almost ready to consume itself, to burn itself out. But at the, at, there's, a, there's a moment when it turns from raging to a, a vermilion glow. When the coals begin to gash and gnash against themselves and it produces this radiant, beautiful light. And he sees in that. So, so and I'm going to use this word here and I'm going to keep using it. I'm not going to go into it, but I'm, I'm trusting that you'll understand it. He finds the logos everywhere in nature. Because if if Christ is the word and made nature, we would expect to find signs of it the logos, the word, the word. We'd expect to find signs of it everywhere. He does. We're gonna read some more of his poems later, but but hold on to this notion because in the modern world, in the scientific mindset, we no longer have this sense of a logos. There there are some scientists and intellectuals who come to it, but for the most part it's it's a worldview that's rejected, a logocentric worldview. In the modern world, it's it's um, pretty generally rejected today. In supernatural love, this woman recalls an experience she had as a three-year-old child. Um, she recalls this, this day, this event, when her father was puzzling over her preoccupation with the word "carnation couldn't figure it out. And you know carnation is the basis for incarnation. Carnation means flesh, that's what it means. Um, pink, our Lord, took on flesh, took on a body. He's an academic and it's, I, it's to me it's a little bit comic, he's a scholar. His first response to the, his daughter's preoccupation with this, work, she's four, his, his first response is to go to a dictionary if a dictionary could give us meanings to things. you listen to the language, you'll see that all all things in this, the scissors, the the dictionary itself, when he touches it, everything in this poem speaks. It's a logos. Things are, each thing in life speaks. Do we hear them? Do we see them? Do we hear them? Um, Pay attention to the words tomb. Think about Christ's tomb. Gloom. Um, the eye of a needle, Christ's words that. Um, Easier, for a camel to go Easier for a camel to go through an eye, right? But God can do anything. The word beloved, um, Paul uses all the time. Her going, Daddy, Daddy, how much is that an echo of the cross? My father, my father. So just hold those on your mind. And then, and then remember, at one point when she pricks the needle, even the needle speaks to her. Um, the, the other thing to, to remember is that the French for carnation, clove, the generic flower, also means nail. So when she pricks herself, what, what we're seeing is that in, in some strange way, mysterious way, in this moment, she participates in the crucifixion. And the question, at least one of the questions I have about this poem, is when the father comes to her, because he's clearly in his head. This is all beyond him. In some mysterious way, does he himself participate in this supernatural love that's being experienced at this moment. That's the name of the poem, Supernatural Love. Okay. Ordinarily I don't say much on poems. I just read them, but there's newcomers here and I just want to try to help. And Remember, my suggestion is, if all of you would keep a folder to put your poems in, It would be a good thing to do because my hope is that you'll go back and reread them. And remember, when you do, you have to read it aloud. Poetry was meant to be heard. It's music, not just left in our head. Because in our head, and I want to say, I want to underline, in our heads, we're angels. We have no bodies. (laughs) Thought, seriously, thought is is, um, disembodied. It's unincarnated. That's what thought is. So we're humans. We've got to get back to our bodies, always particularly in our age, because um, we live in such a Gnostic age. I believe that. I'm seri- I think it's a serious danger of our age. We live in a Gnostic age. Um, so keep them in a, f- in, a bol- in a folder, because we'll go back to them sometimes. And I hope you'll reread them, and if you do read them aloud. Okay. Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Wind tuber. <coughs> I caught this morning Morning's Minion, Kingdom of Daylights, Dauphin, Dappled Dawn, Drawn Falcon. And notice how the onomatopoeia, the, the sound of the words, imitates the flight of the bird. He's the Dauphin. He's the Prince of the Air, of the Daylight, of the Morning. That's his nature. He's the heir to the throne. So he presents him as the Dauphin, the Prince. I caught this morning morning's minion, the minion of the morning, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn, drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind my heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Why in hiding? He's a priest. I think. I think loving things of the world frightens him. <clears throat> I, I, I know this from it. But brute beauty and valor and air. Or, sorry, brute, brute beauty and valor and act. O oh air, pride, plume, here, buckle. Notice how it stops. The whole motion stops and the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier more dangerous, O oh my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down cillion shine and blue bleak embers oh my dear, fall gall themselves and gash gold vermilion. He's all around us in the most ordinary things. God bless. <laughs> I do this every week. Sorry. By the way, you all know that this is on Dan has put all of this online, so you can get if, if you're if you want and you've missed anything, you can always go back and, and get it online. So Gertrude Schneckenberg's supernatural love. Remember, she's an older woman now, because clearly she could not have understood this as a four-year-old. She has no clue. She's a four-year-old. All She, she just has this preoccupation with the word carnation because she knows it's Christ flowers. Just a four-year-old. But this is a woman looking back and seeing something that was there that she couldn't have grasped as a child the way she does as an older woman. Supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer, tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens, a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word, carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. The dictionary speaks. And notice for him it's in terms of duty. It's an abstraction. He touches it. But just notice He touches it. And it's like he hears this cosmic voice or something speaking to him. As if he touched a single key and heard a distant pluck infinitesimal string. The obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed, as this study's gloom whereas a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there he bends to pour over the Latin blossom I am four I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch beloved X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does where following each X I'm I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads The pink variety of clove Connacio the Latin meaning flesh as if the buds essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me. A drifted secret bitter ecstasy, the stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud, the clove, a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth, beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, my blood so dearly bought, The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand. It is myself I've sewn. The flesh laid bare, the threads of blood, my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloom from roots that bore the flowers I call Christ's. Wow. No, I was four I do not know why that Sorry I can't get through this poem One day I will get through it God God Sorry What's wrong with me? Oh. Okay, let's start The epic I want to just quickly review what we did last week. (laughs) Remember the purpose of the class is to to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. Isn't this amazing? I mean, here's a wind or a bird flying in the sky, and here's a four-year-old girl. And there's this amazing sense that something is going on there. And the poet lays it out. So the question that we have to ask is how much is that going on around our lives, and we just don't see it. We just get so caught up with what we're doing. It's like we take ourselves outside of mystery um, to to do whatever it is we're doing. (coughs) That's our purpose. I talked about the prophetic character of some works of literature, and I tried to identify the nature and distinguish it from scriptural (coughs) prophecy, remember? Scriptural prophecy, if you remember, is is God speaking directly to his prophets. He calls people out to speak his word. He speaks directly to them. We know that. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of them, Isaiah. Um, In literature, what I'm claiming is that we get a prophecy on this side of Revelation, it's in the natural order. And the great poets are, are prophetic in this sense. Even the prophets of the Old Testament rarely tell the future. That is what prophesying means. When we look at the prophets in, in Scripture, almost always they're, they're telling the people those things about themselves that they don't want to hear. God speaks directly to them, um, often in anger in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament, in Christ's anger. Um, but they're, they're revealing those things about ourselves that we don't want to. Typically we don't want to hear, we don't want to see. <coughs> so the, the great value is that they, they descend into the depths, call it the unconscious, what's obscure in us, all of us that we don't see very well, and they throw a light on it and show it to us. <coughs> so they're helping us to see those things that very often we don't want to see. That was one of them. Um, and. Um, those of you who've been here know that um, every one of the major epics has an action that um, concludes with what we what the church calls the parousia the parousia the parousia the second coming the church's word for Christ's second coming. Every epic ends with a parousia, so that in one sense, the, the, the pro, these what I'm calling these prophetic works are not just um, revealing us to ourselves, those things that are not easy to see. They're also prefigurations. They are telling the future. They're anticipating Christ in an amazing way. Just It's amazing. If you read these books, those of you who are, who've done this already... Put the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid together and then get into a Christian world and you go, holy cow! How did they all do this? Because they're all seeing it. The Perusia is the second coming of Christ. Every epic ends with the return of a king. Achilles is going to withdraw from battle. We will see that. In fact, we touched on it last week. The whole epic takes place without his presence. He's absent. At the very end of the epic, he will return. And when he returns... Homer's descriptions of him will amaze you. There's a a luminous light around him. He goes out to the ditch and shouts, this is after Patroclus dies, he shouts, 12 Trojans die. When he enters, the this war has not been able to conclude in nine and a half years. There's something wrong. We talked about that. There's something wrong. When he reenters the war, he will bring it to its end. The return of the king. In the Odyssey, Odysseus will return home, and when he does... He's going to kill all the suitors. He will restore order. So when the king returns, he comes in judgment and truth. Always. Aeneas, when Troy is destroyed, now finally in Aeneid we get the picture of Troy destroyed because we don't see it in the Iliad of the Odyssey, even though it's about the Trojan War. Aeneid has to leave Troy and find his home, and he discovers as he goes eight years through these journeys... That he's finally returning to the place of his ancestry. So he's he's returning to beginnings, even though he didn't know that. And when he returns, he brings judgment. There will be these wars in Italy that that are going to be the condition for founding Rome, which was going to go on to be the center of Christendom. Those of you who did the Aeneid know how important that is, because Rome, as Virgil understood it, was the eternal city and undying how in the world did Virgil get that? That's a part of our faith. The return of the king. Those of you who have read Tolkien, the fellow, or the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the last work of the trilogy, right, is called return of, the king. Return, of the king. return of the King. Where did Tolkien get it? I mean, Tolkien knew this stuff as well as anybody. So this notion of a return of the king the, the, the readings we had this morning. Be ready. Mm-hmm. We don't know the day. We're supposed to be living in this. It's coming. We don't know the day to be on guard because once it happens, judgment, truth. The door will be locked. So where do these... Why is it that every one of these epics ends that way? I mean, these poets had some extraordinary kind of intuition of Christ. And I'm going to say... Because the Logos is always there. We've lost the notion of it, but it's there. Christ is everywhere. The Logos is here. Um, Benedict's, one of his greatest pieces of work, I think it's before he became Pope, um, was the Regensburg Address. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You all should look at it. It's an, extraordinary, it's an extraordinary document. He gave an address at Regensburg in Germany in which he argued against the fundamentalist mind in the modern world. He clearly had the Protestant mind, the the Protestant fundamentalist, and Islam, the fundamentalist aspect. And his concern was that 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 was a danger in the modern world, and the scientific mind as well, because it, um, it, it didn't acknowledge a logos working in nature, that there was a danger to the modern. He's speaking to the whole world, but he's certainly addressing a Catholic audience. There's a danger to the modern world in our not being aware of a logos at work in nature. That's from Pope Benedict, the Regensburg Address. So one of the things, one of the values of reading works like this is to recover our sense of what's going on in nature. Milton, in the Protestant mind, said, all's, all's. All's depraved, all's ruined. In Paradise Lost, Milton, Milton takes all of the Homeric gods, every one of the ones, that those of you who've been here who did it Zeus, Apollo, Poseidon, Athena, Hera, the whole, the whole Olympian world. Milton took that and trans- reinterpreted that and, and made them demonic angels. He took what Homer saw as a good in nature and made it evil. So there's a Manichaean element that in, that's introduced into the modern world with the Protestant mind that we tend to look at. I mean, think about all the modern world, you know, like um, Stephen King. And so, when I, when I, we watch movies a lot, um, I, I do. Um, if you look at what comes out weekly, Easy 75% of the stuff coming out Is horror stories They're just horror stories The modern mind looks at the world in terms of horrors Black and white That there's this inherent evil that's an, I hope that's clear That's not a Catholic view The Catholic view of nature is that it's wounded We are wounded We're stuck with this thing called concupiscence It overwhelms us so completely sometimes That we feel that nature is depraved But it's not The Catholic mind says we're wound, we have this wound much of the Protestant attitude is that it's corrupted, it's depraved, we lost everything, goodwill, our free will our mind um, Nate so, so Homer's showing us a, a world in which there's this tremendous goodness going on, even if in the Iliad everybody's killing each other so. but every epic moves towards this parousia the return of the king judgment and truth and light so in some ways, some mysterious ways, these these ancient poets had this prophetic intuition of something coming. Now, I'm just startled every time I think about it. Um, and the other thing that that, um, that I suggested last time was that there's some way in which literature can be a grace for us. And I explained it in this way, that that One of the things that literature does that no other kind of knowledge does, none. Every other kind of knowledge is about nature. It involves an abstraction of the mind. We abstract into ideas so we leave the world behind. Yeah. Literature returns us to the world. It always takes us back to the world. So it gives us a knowledge by experience. We re-enter that world Except when we re-enter that world, we're not subject to its contingencies. We're, um, you know, I'm, one of the most powerful examples for me, have you all seen that movie Saving Private Ryan? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know in the beginning of that movie, we've got a good half hour of just nothing but carnage and blood. It's, it's one of the most violent beginnings. It, it almost makes me want to turn away from it. To me it's sort of overdone. But you're in that movie and you're watching limbs get caught up. They're on a beachhead and they're, they're under fire and they're just getting torn apart, limbs are coming off, blood is flying out of heads, and, or if we're in an airplane you know, and the airplane crashes, we can experience all of that in literature without experiencing the actual physical consequences of it. So when we, when we return to literature, we return at the same time while we're being protected from its contingencies. It's almost as if we're allowed to go back into the world to to learn about ourselves, but with protections. In some ways, it's like a grace that literature is offering it to help us go back and learn about ourselves again. To see those things that we so often miss in our world, you know, when we go around with each other, how often we miss things. So, at the outset, I'm <laughs> suggesting that there are all these powers to literature, to poetry, that are, that are amazing, that are different from other forms of knowledge, and they all go to this basic thing that we're doing, that there's something prophetic to it. Um, I mentioned three qualities to the epic form. Um, one, I said, is that it shatters the veil between our world and the divine. It's taken away because in, in, the, in the mythic world of these epics, we see the gods actually interacting <coughs> with humans. And I always thought that was amazing because um, we believe that we all have free will and that God's active in our lives, but God won't do anything to um, demean um, the great, one of the great, the greatest gift he gave us was fruit trees. Nothing else in nature has free will. We we do, and I, I argued St. Thomas's position: we cannot separate free will from reason. We cannot. We have reason because we can see things to help us make choices. We have a free will so that we can act on the basis. They are absolutely inseparable. They can't be separated. Um, in the Homeric world, we see the gods intervening. And the only way that I can make sense of this is imagine this. If you believe in free will and that God is helping with us, he will not demean our free will by forcing us to do something. He does not do that. He solicits. So when we do things that are not good, imagine the kind of problems we leave God with trying to bring good out of evil without imposing his will on us. Like a like a puppet master. Is that clear? Imagine how hard it must be. I mean I mean I don't believe it's hard for God because he but the task that he's got, he's he's got to work with what we the evil we do or the wrong we do and bring good out of it without undermining or demeaning our free will. In the Homeric world, what Virgil is showing is the gods intervening, interacting with humans in order to bring about this end, what we said of the the will of Zeus. Achilles recovering his ang- the, the honor that was taken from him by Agamemnon at the beginning. So the gods are moving towards that. We've got to watch what they do. That's part of the So the epic in the epic, the epic takes away this veil. It shatters that veil. And suddenly we see the divine and the human interacting. It's one of the characteristics of the ancient epic. The second I suggested is that there's this metaphysical expansion of time and place. We always go back to origins. Um, Sue or Kathy mentioned. I can't. Kathy, that going back to everyone has a backstory. Everybody's got a family history. Um, um, we're going to learn. i want to read the 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 Troy, the Troy legend in a second, just to make that clear. And finally, one of the things that the epic does is that it um, it deals explicitly bravely, truthfully, with the disorders between the sexes. At the heart of every epic is revealed this disorder between the sexes. It's one of the effects of the fall, so that we're constantly reminded of the struggles that men and women have as sexes, because we're very different. Even if if we're humans, men and women are different. It's going to be implied through most of the Iliad. The Odyssey looks at it straight on. I think the Odyssey is one of the most important books on the the differences between man and woman that we've got in our history. Um, the epic theme would seem to be, um, the subject would be <coughs> Helen's taking of, or I mean Paris' taking of Helen, yeah. The war started nine and a half years earlier. Homer doesn't start there, because that's not his concern. That started the war. He picks up in the ninth and a half year, we've done this I think, starts in the nine and a half year of the war he doesn't start with Paris taking Helen that's not his main subject even if it's there his main subject has to do with authority and rule and the nature of honor the epic begins when Agamemnon takes Brises away from Achilles he dishonors him Achilles withdraws from the war so at the center of this epic is this whole question of honor, kleos. Kleos. <clears throat> what constitutes this dignity as a human being? And I said last time, as you know from your reading already, that in this world, honor is looked at in terms of material possessions. That's a fact. Men are... are some Herodotus, the historian, said that the Trojan War was really about booty, conquest. The whole idea of honor missed him, he missed it. And lots of people read it that way. And I've said <laughs> in this class that I believe the Iliad is probably the best critique we have of the modern capitalistic world in existence. I'm not kidding that. You can look at, uh, at Agamemnon as a modern CEO, and you can look at all the warriors as businessmen in their, in their carols, in their offices, They're not wearing armor, but they're wearing suits, but they're all competitive with each other, and they want to get ahead. And what's driving them is becoming wealthy and having more money than somebody else. What's driving the people in the Iliad? Booty. They want Helen back. At the the top of the list of all these things that give value to a person's actions is woman. The more beautiful, the more valued she is. So... Honor is conferred by material things. What drives Americans today? Wealth, things, possessions. TVs, dresses. I mean, really seriously, this is a critique of our own world. What's the danger of that? If if the honor, if the integrity of a human being rests on what's conferred on us, it can be taken away. And if it's taken away, what then? What happens when people lose jobs today? We know that some people go out and kill themselves. I mean, there can't be any clear indication that their, com- their complete life is vested in a job or money. So Homer is raising this question right at the outset. What is this thing called kleos, the honor? And we see the dangers of it. So I think what Homer is showing us is one of the reasons this war has not concluded in nine and a half years is because there's this disorder and people are not facing it. I'm gonna say it's here in America that this is a critique of us. It's a critique of every age. Homer saw through it all. Um, And the major question that I'm gonna ask and come to later is what's the difference between East and West in the way that we look at this thing called honor, this kleos? And I'm going to argue now, I'm going to make an assertion, you can tag me on this, you can get me on this later if you want, but I'm going to say that that this conflict between East and West that Homer shows us in the Iliad is still going on, that it hasn't stopped. And one of the reasons it hasn't stopped is because the East still has not understood something about human dignity that Homer revealed that the West does. We have an understanding about the nature of the human being that the East lacks, and if that's if that sounds too provocative, all I just ask is be patient and wait and see if the book doesn't hold up on that because I think that's what the book's showing us. Um, <clears throat> okay, one last thing about prophecy, and we'll I want to turn to the terms then, but before we do. Um,
2: Whole thing of honor Bob, yeah just real uh, just the last yeah. day or two that you know always you always hear about honor killings and I'm not sure that you know that words Did in the see? news wow yeah go ahead. and yeah. one of the things is, is some father killed his family because of, of the lack mm-hmm. of honor yeah now I'm not sure where that is that related to what you're talking about? It's a little bit scary for me to
1: pick that up, Tom. Um, oh, okay. I, well, wait, no, 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 no. I, gave, I mean, I, let me see if I can try to respond to this. Um, when I first, when we did the first class a week ago, I, I brought the Magnificent because there was a passage, I think from Peter's letter, I think it was a letter from Peter, in which he described Christ in terms of honor and glory. Hmm. I'd have to go get it, yeah, but those were words in that that was the actual quote: honor and glory. Um, I think what Homer's showing us is really important because I believe that honor is a real thing. That we, in our prayers, we very often hear Father talking about the dignity of human life. That we honor each other. That 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 that's a way of showing that we value the dignity of something. So in our prayers, we. We, we pray for an end to abortion you know, or, um, and to, to deal with those things that dishonor people, that, that treat them less than what they are. Now, does that mean honor is always right? No, it doesn't, because we see these men have been fighting um, out of a spirit of honor for nine and a half years. Honor can be disordered. Men can fight duels over honor because they, they take the injustice is done to each other so seriously that they can kill so honor and it's i mean honor needs to be scrutinized it needs to be looked at because there is a i mean we're seeing this in the book there's a false sense of honor it's 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 led to the death of all these men over nine and a half years why why would agamemnon have taken achilles prize away from him unless honor were so important for him but if he did that, is there any reason for us to believe the war is going to stop anytime soon? It's not. It's going to go on. We, we've talked about this. Something happens when Achilles steps out of that world. And I read that passage in Book 9 where they bring that, the embassy and all the booty back to get him back into the war. And he says, such, uh, such honor is a thing I need not I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. For him to make that move means he's turned away from material possessions. He's almost with Paul. I count everything as loss. He gives up everything. Says, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. Something happens to Achilles, and I think it's a preparation for what's going to happen at the end when he re-enters the war. But clearly, Homer's showing us more and more clearly there's something wrong with honor. It is a great thing. It's natural but it has to be understood for what it really is Christ is the revelation of it finally completely but I think we're getting images of it in these other things so I hope that helps. No, that helped. One last prophetic because it goes to this question of honor and, and, and a, one of the major questions I'm going to throw out at you guys today to have in front of us for the rest of our reading The greatest critique of poetry came from the beginning And it's so clear, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey and read Plato and Aristotle, you know that there's nothing that Plato and Aristotle did that didn't come from Homer. And here, one of the greatest readers of Homer is critiquing him, finding fault with him, which is what good readers do, I think. Plato says that we're all living in a... This goes to this question of this aspect of prophecy... He says we're all living in a cave, all of us. We're we're people down below, shackled to a wall. And we see shadows on the wall. Images. I'm going to call them appearances. For our purposes here, appearances. We don't know that the way we see things is being formed by people up behind us. Who are in front of a fire, and the light from the fire is casting shadows on the wall. It's like watching a movie. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And we take the, mo- the movie, except it's not a movie, it's reality. It's us right here. It's us right here. I just has to say it's us here. We take these as reality, but their appearances, it's the way people dressed up nicely, going to church, saying prayers. I mean, let me put it negatively. What they don't see is that. The shadows are being cast by people who are carrying books. So what forms the shadows? The way that we look at things because of our education. And I hope that's clear. Wow. Wow. Imagine any of us live, growing in a, in a closet with no reading for 20 years and then coming out. What would the world, how would it appear to us? So much of the way we relate to the world is formed by the reading that we do. So it's the thinkers in books that help shape it. So we're trapped with appearances, and books are behind them. One man begins to question this. He asks questions, and his questions begin to lead him out of the cave until he comes out and he sees the light itself, the sun, or being. Remember what God called himself in the Old Testament. I am that am is being. He's living I, but being, he is all being. Nothing before him, nothing. He is uncreated being. Nobody created him because if they did, there'd be something greater than God. He is being itself. For us as Catholics, we believe that evil's a privation. We lose something. It's not a real thing. It's not a real evil. Evil's a privation, it's a loss. Not an actual thing. If it's an actual thing, We are are Manichaeans. We're in a duality. that good and evil are co-eternal. And if they're co-eternal, there's no reason not to choose evil. Yeah? That's a truncated philosophy. It won't stand. Evil is a privation. It's a loss. Um, Somebody comes up and sees the true light, the sunlight, and realizes that everything's been wrong. So this is so... In sympathy with the Old Testament, New Testament, he realizes everybody's wrong that the way they see things is right. He comes back into the cave to question, to raise questions, to help people see that what they think isn't the truth. Who is that? Christ. Christ will come later here. Oh, you mean the philosopher? Who? Oh, the okay. philosopher. Yeah. I'm sorry. Name one specific who did this? Plato. Aristotle. Um, Socrates. 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 Oh, okay. Right? Yes. He went around. This is, this is the figure in the Republic. He went around questioning everybody, showing them that they really didn't know what they thought they did. What was their response to him? They killed, killed him. Killed him. Because people always want to believe they're right. Philosophy offers a critique to help us in our struggles in this world of logos, that we're in the world, that there's something going on to help correct us, to make us better at work, in the natural order not just in church, in the natural order. That was Benedict's whole point. This man comes back into the cave and raises questions because they all believe what they see is the truth. How, how often do we think we're certain about what we do and we argue with people and how often do we question? I'm just asking that really, how often do we actually stand in the world questioning things, raising questions? We so often make assertions. They kill him. What happens when Christ comes into the world? They kill him. So, what Plato says is, we're not going to let the poets into our, he's going to found a new city. It's like Aeneas in Rome, or, or in the Old Testament, the coming into Jerusalem, the existence of Jerusalem. Plato says we're not going to let Homer into our new cities, founding a city. It's a founding. There's the epic theme, that's the great epic theme, a founding of the people. We're not going to let him into our city unless he can get past the appearances of things to show the eternal truth, what's real. So the poets who are too caught up with appearances and shadows are misleading. They're dangerous. It's only the poet, this is so crucial, it's only the poet who can take us back to the world of appearances to show us things as we experience them, like in the Iliad or take a modern novel take Moby Dick, take Jane Austen, it doesn't matter. We go back into that world in terms of its random contingencies, things going on the way they do in our lives, right, when we go back into a novel or a movie. But the true poet is the one who can take us back to that world and by the way he treats it, reveal those things that are unchanging and eternal. You can see beneath the appearances because we've got to get past seeming it's too easy, it's too easy for us to live in a world of seeming, to seem to be good when we're not. And this is, this sh- should blow you away. The, the great concern for Plato, and this is, goes to the question of the Iliad here, he said that the, that the greatest thing that a soul can attain here in this earth, this is pre-Christian, is justice give each other their due. Justice is giving each other our due. Can we really give each other our due if we're caught here? And there's no way to give each other our due if we don't learn to order our own souls properly. So one of the great truths of the republic is to mind your own business. That the task that each one of us faces is to to order our souls to make them good. How different from that is Christ? We cannot treat each other. We cannot give each other our due. We cannot relate to each other in the way that we were intended to if we do not become better persons ourselves, to mind our own business, to make ourselves good. Okay? If we live in a world of seeing, we won't do that, Right? Now notice, this is Plato. In order to to become a just person, you have to give each other your due. How can you do that if you don't order your own soul properly to get past seeming? We always seem nice to each other. Mm -hmm. Here's Plato. And remember the the Psalms from the Old Testament that speak to this. Socrates is engaging with a couple of men who, who are asking what justice is and the, the just man will be a certain way. One of the arguments is, most of the arguments are false, and Socrates typically shows that there's something wrong with these positions these people are taking. They'll say that the just man who has such a disposition will be... Wait. Um, yeah, let me start here. They say that the just man has such a disposition, he will be whipped, he'll be racked, he'll be bound, he'll have both his eyes burnt out. And at the end, when he's undergone every sort of evil, he'll be crucified and know that one shouldn't wish to be, but to, to seem to be just. How do we get past seeming? Because lots of men seem to be just. He says the only way we'll ever get past seeming to be just is if everything is taken away And we're crucified because until then, there will always be something selfish behind what we do. That we'll be caught in a world of seeming, wanting to seem to be a good man or a good woman. But we will never know unless everything, not only everything's taken away because then we don't have anything to pretend about, but crucified. Who is that? Christ. This is Plato, 400 years before Christ does he actually use the word crucified? yeah I just read it yeah, Jesus <laughs> uh, he'll be racked. he'll be bound he'll have both his eyes burned out and at the end when he has undergone every sort of evil that is let's test this guy to see if he's really just how will we know take everything away and in the end when he's un- undergone every sort of evil that, that is will we, Christ keep saying give up everything go to a cross you know renounce yourself renounce the world Unless you do this, unless you fall to the ground. Over and over and over again, he keeps saying, give it all up. Give it all up. Because to the extent that we have all this stuff, how much does it keep us from really loving him? What do the saints do? The saints aren't saints by accident. Here's Plato in the natural order. He has gone every sort of evil. He'll be crucified and know that one shouldn't wish wish to be but seem to be just. How much easier it is to seem to be just than to be really a just man. Can we ever do it without giving up everything? What's Achilles going to do? At one point, I mean, here he's already, he's walked away from the war. When Agamemnon comes saying, take all this booty, we want you back, he says, such booty is a thing I need not. So there's a moment in the book when, when that way of looking at the world Achilles refuses Now does he entirely do it? We don't know because we can't get inside of his soul But we know that something's happening here That's going to lead to that moment when he returns to the war So here are all these prophetic Elements going on In the Iliad um, um, And about and hold on to the discussion of justice because I'm gonna I'm gonna am I'm just gonna read a couple of passages to get us going today and um, I don't want to spend much time here. You know the epic is a word. The opening invocation. You know that Homer prays to the goddess Calliope, sing. She's the one who's singing the song. In medius res, in the middle of things. I spoke, I think, to this. Every epic begins in the midst of things, and it's not the earth. Arith- arithmetic middle it 's not in the middle that way it means in the midst of things when suddenly we hear and Sally ran off with a man, our nephew's on drugs, you discover your mom 's been drinking alcohol I mean whatever it is whatever the whatever the difficulty we face remember all, all disorders come from families. Where else do they begin we all we all we all carry wounds it's that in the midst of things means that moment when suddenly you realize something's going on that you hadn't seen before. It's that, I mean, the modern world, that's, that's the moment when you enter therapy or, you know, but, but it means some, some catharsis has to happen. You, you have to move through this disorder or there's no way to come out of it. So it's going to be a painful moment. So immediate race means in the middle of things. What's the middle of things? Here. Now remember, the war's been going on for nine and a half years. What's the significance of nine and a half? It's almost ten. Something is about to happen. Something's going. To, we're right in the middle of a disorder. When we're in the—by the way, when we're in the middle of a disorder, I'm assuming all of us have experienced them. When you're in the middle of a disorder, does it feel like you're in the middle and it's about ready to be resolved? No. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. When you're in the middle of a disorder, you're crushed. I mean, your life is going to end. Yeah. That's why we're. Begin each day with a prayer. In medius race, in the midst of things, some disorder is coming to light. Agamemnon takes Brises, Achilles withdraws. The typical reading is, proud man, he should have swallowed his pride and stayed there. If he'd stayed there, is there any reason to believe the war wouldn't go on for another nine and a half? No. That was the moment where, and remember this sheet I gave you on the emotions. I can't look at it right now, but... It's so important to read this. So important to read this. Anger is the rectifying emotion. It's the the emotion we call on to answer an injustice. Is everybody with me? It's the emotion you call on to answer an injustice. When somebody threatens our family, what do we do? We get angry to, to say, stop it, stop it, stop. That's what we do. Um... in the the middle of things. This great disorder has opened. Homer's opened it for us. It has to do with two kinds of authority, king, natural, and his greatest warrior, who's greater than anybody by nature. And what will happen? Epithets are tags that go to the essence of something. Homer is constantly describing characters in, in terms of some description. All of us have them, right? If, if, if somebody were to do mimic sketches of each of us, I, students have done this of me, it's comic, to, when, when you see, actually it's a little bit scary sometimes. <laughs> when, you, when students show you things about yourself that you don't always hold up in front of you and then you're asked to look at them. And, but epithets are just words, so that if, if um, somebody were to describe you each one of you would probably have a different epithet, right? I mean, there would be something peculiar to you that would be different from the epithet for somebody else. So it's grey-eyed Athena, swift-footed Achilles, the wine-dark sea. Everything has an essence. Everything has a nature. So the epithets are just ways of getting to the nature of something because Homer knows everything in nature has a nature, and the words go to it consistently. The epic similes, you know what similes are? He's like this. It's as this, whenever you use like or as. So if you say, My husband acted like a bear last night. Yeah. Homer uses epithets. And in the, in, the, in his works, the epithets are always in terms of something in nature because nature is the reference for everything. It'll be in terms of birds or snow falling or a river going or, you know, that's not the modern range of things, but it is for Homer. Um, catalogs, There's Homer will line up things. We do it all the time. When we go to the store, we make a list. When we've got a number of things to do, we'll put down a list. One of the most important is in the beginning when Nestor um, gives the catalog of the ships. Some people just go to sleep on it, but mm-hmm. there's this long catalog of all the Achaean ships. If If, remember, there's nothing that Homer does that that he doesn't put in order, and an order that gives some significance, an order that tells. He does nothing without a sense of order, that there's a purpose and a meaning to things. When he gives the catalog of the ships, if you look at it closely, you'll find Achilles at one end and Ias at the other. Why? Because they're the two most powerful men in the army. Who's in the middle? Odysseus. Those things are not accident. He's always showing us something. Achilles, Odysseus is a man of prudence. He's, we'll know from the audience he's a man of real cunning. Aristia is excellence, but it means more than that. It, it means a mastery, a power. All of the heroes in this book will have their moments of Aristia, their excellence. They'll go into battle and nobody can touch them. In the fourth book, third, fourth book, fourth and fifth books, Diomedes has an Aristia. It's really fun It's comic, actually, to watch. He can't kill except in pairs. Two men, two men, two men, two men. Why does Homer do that? It's a way of showing. Now, that may sound stupid, but I know all of us. I'm assuming the men, maybe more than the men, I don't know. But all of us have witnessed sports events where somebody is in what we call a zone. Mm -hmm. I can remember when I was younger, and Joe Montana and Steve Young were quarterbacks for the 49ers. I mean, there are these games where... Two minutes to go, and Montana would march the team down. and people would watch in wonder in awe, genuinely. I mean you, to be in a stadium, you, you watch it and you're almost not believing what you see. He cannot make a mistake. N- did not. Steve Young too. Um, Michael Jordan, basketball in some of his last games. The people watched him in amazement. There's these moments when somebody becomes athletically so capable. It's almost as if they master nature. Nobody can stop them. And I want to lay this out so you're all not laughing at this or at least for something to think about. Why are sports so addictive, if I can use that word? Why why do they have such a powerful influence on us? I'm going to say the mythic roots of it are Christ, walking on water, healing the blind, He was the maker of nature. How could he not master it? He rose from the dead. How did he do that? He made it. So one of the reasons sports has this deep hold is because in some sense, all of us, that's why it means so much to all of us, because when that's happening and we're watching it, it's like we're involved. Mm -hmm. That there is this deep, we're amazed, and we participate in it somehow. We're taken back to that same sense that that humans have been given this extraordinary power to do things sometimes and we share in it for a moment so there are all these moments of Aristia. Um, so those are those are just the basics of what we're doing now i just i want to stop and i want to read we're already late but i want to read a couple of passages from the book just to i want to I raise I already read the beginning when Agamemnon takes Achilles. I want to read a couple of things just about the differences between the two people. Sorry? See? What did they say? Achilles, what? Be clear, I can't understand. <laughs> I think you all know, I excuse, last year when I started this, I made an apology beginning saying that there would be times when I would be, I, I gave the example when we're at home we'll be talking and then Suzanne will say, she'll give me a word and and then I realize that I've said something, used a word that I shouldn't have. And so when those moments come, if, if um, I mean I know she will help me out but if, if I do that, because I'll probably do it more than certainly more than I want to, stop me for a moment and ask a question or correct me because because it's clear to me I'm losing my mind, and I'm saying it. No, I'm, I'm saying, I'm really saying it honestly. I'm, I'm so aware, I'm so aware. I don't even know what I said then.
0: Join the club. Yeah, no, we did. I,
1: yeah, we. I told you that we both of us have gotten past that point where we walk into a bedroom and then say, now why didn't I come in here? You know, it just, it's just getting worse and worse. There's a part of me that thinks I shouldn't be doing this before, because I'm just inflicting <laughs> chaos on you guys. Um, I'd like to look at just a couple of passages and then stop for the day. Um, I've been rushing too much to because we, I'm rushing to get everything going because I really want to get into the book so this is a lot of important background but I'll just take a second. Any questions about any of this? I don't want to take any, any lengthy time but do you have any questions about Kathy do you have a question
0: beautiful. Mm-hmm. I like it. sorry I really like everything I've
1: heard so really a little too much but. <laughs> no I you know at, who was not waterboard Scott came in last year in the first meeting said like I came thirsty, expecting a cup of water, and instead I got a fire hydrant. <laughs> oh God! I, I'm sorry for that. Sorry for that. It's one of my great, what just one of my great failings. No
2: questions. You know, I think of the, uh, that in philosophy. What me want? because I studied to be a priest, I was forced to take philosophy, but I wouldn't have taken it naturally. I would, do, I would have been overwhelmed with it. Mm-hmm. But one of the uh, aspects of it is epistemology. It's a branch of philosophy where you study the whole idea of knowing. Yes. And what do you know when you say you, you know? How do you know, too, yeah. And that gets into what you're right. saying here. Right, right. And then we read a lot of Plato. Right. So, and his, his ability to take, to peel it down, peel it down, yep. and I, yep. I was amazed to have yep. that privilege to read yep. that. Yeah.
1: Mm. You know, one of the interesting things to go back <coughs> to this notion of the logos, how important it is, in the modern Catholic, not a clue, just not a clue. Sadly, it, it should be a part of our education, but it's, to my mind, it should be a part of education generally, not in 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 public schools, not presented as Catholic, just presented as reason in nature it's there take Catholic out of it just it's rationality and everything in nature
2: would another word Inter- for Locos be
1: intelligibility
2: mm-hmm. yeah except, except yes is but, an understanding that we don't have that needs yes. to be illuminated
1: right that everything in nature is intelligible because it has being in it and being is intelligible that's the philosophy that everything in nature radiates with light it whispers to us it's got meaning if we would hear it but we don't the reason I... I, I use the, the writing that I, I use that a lot, but the reason I... Logos carries more, it, because it, 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 it means a word. And in that sense, it can mean a living word. So it's a little bit different from intelligibility, but... Okay. But the reason I'm using Logos is because it means a word. Everything speaks. But ultimately, the, the ultimate source of all this speaking is the word, the word, the logos.
0: And mm. didn't you say <clears throat> something about there are so many names in here? <clears throat> Don't worry about those that die. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> he did say that.
0: Oh,
1: everybody died. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That was wonderful. Was that insane. was wonderful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God,
0: he killed just pierced so my then. heart.
1: No, we're meant to pray for them. <laughs> what, who's, who was it? Somebody, some writer I know. Like, who was this? Maybe it was Jean Kurtzinger, the dear friend at UD, was a colleague when his wife died, and she was so engr- she was an artist too. She was so engrossed in a work of art, a work of art. She began to pray for the characters.
0: <laughs>
1: we are supposed to worry about the results. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no
0: are we? I mean, no, here, here's names. what I think.
1: What I said is there's everybody's named. I wanna, I'm glad you mentioned it because I want to take a second. Everybody's named. Don't worry about trying no, to hold on because it. there's too many. Yeah. Just be aware that the ones that are important will keep coming back so you'll find it easier and easier to follow. If I said anything differently, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, Linda. <laughs> but I heard.
0: Does, well, like, does Cro- I have Cronian underlined? Cronion. Does that? Does he? She. Cronian.
1: was. Was, down, was the father of Zeus. Just. K-R-Z. Yep. Oh. It's just another name for Kronos. Is the but I I would say that's what it, here. Let me say that again for all of you because you're being really conscientious. No, you are as a reader, which is a really good thing. And, <laughs> No, I'm saying that seriously, that you're reading that, that closely. There's too much to do in here. We don't have time. If I were, if, in school, we would spend a month on it, but meet three times a week. I've got to get through this, not in an academic way. I want, to, I want to get through it to try to get to the heart of it in a way that will help you see that we have got this incredibly rich tradition that can help us see and feel and we don't know. So, I'm, I'm suggesting we can't read it that way. Read on. Keep pushing. When you're tripping over words, try to let it be. Just go on. Yeah, trusting that <clears throat> that the important names will keep coming back. And as we work at it in class, mm-hmm. it'll get clearer and clearer. And it won't be so confusing. But at the beginning, when you're meeting all of these names, it's overwhelming. It is. So... And just a, before we start again, I, I mentioned this—a really interesting thing. You know, we're talking about this, this dignity of the human person, this integrity that that will come to light in this battle between East and West. And I'm going to claim that East didn't know it and still doesn't—that this is something peculiar to the heritage of the West. And it's in one sense. We don't understand it if we don't know Homer because it begins there. That in the Iliad, Homer never describes a fight scene without naming the people involved. He never describes a death without naming that death. In the modern world, you'll get descriptions of horror stories with soldiers dying all the time and they're nameless. They are nameless. What does that say? Think about the importance of that. Homer never gives us a description of a battle in which a person dies without naming that person because he's honoring them. By naming them, he's he's acknowledging the value that this person has. He's not nameless. He's not this damn thing. He's a person. You know, he should be honored. One of the things that makes me most angry about institutions, today, particularly about secretaries, sorry if I'm... so. Is very, well, no, very often these secretaries are the ones that hold business together, and they're rarely honored. You know, people, they do all this work, and, and it's the professors and other people who get all the honor and money. Honor is not a small thing. It is a huge thing. So Homer's going to name everybody. How did you put it? how did you? i to How'd you, for
0: that? <laughs> you, you forget us. about
2: those that died? <laughs> <of those laughs> no,
0: I mean, this line two sixty four. No, I'm not gonna go I mean, there. No, no, dead, no, I, no, I'm not gonna
2: go there. I don't
0: know where they're living or dead, but I can't keep all of their strings. All these let, names, let me, I let can't let even he. pronounce them, <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> great influence. <laughs> I Please care about them, but but do it with some restraint because we've oh, got a we can't, there's so can't many. You can't take it in. It's one, you know, if you were in the middle of a war, wouldn't it be confusing if you are plot down in the middle of a war, truly, with thousands of men around you killing each other? Yeah. Let me look at a couple of scenes here, and then we're going to stop.
0: Book.
1: The fog of war. <laughs> the fog, yeah, the yes, ca- the fog. That's too nice. The chaos, violent chaos. Chaos. We've already looked at the opening scene. You remember where Agamemnon takes Briseis and Achilles says, You wine sack of a dog's ears, you ruler of non entities. And then he curses them and says, um, Not even on the day when the Trojans are coming to the ships and putting them on fire will I come back. And then you will regret the dishonor that you've done me. Now, some people are horrified by that. It seems to be arrogant and selfish. It is. And he's wishing that the Trojans defeat the Achaeans because of what Agamemnon's done. The irony, you don't know it now, but you'll see it. He will get what he wishes. The Trojans will come to the ship. One of the people who will be killed will be his friend, Patroclus and and then something will happen he will do something no other man in the book does and I think it's at that point that we begin to see that that there was something in nature pointing towards Christ that these poets saw but we have to we have to wait to get there but anyway we've read that opening what I want to do just very very quickly is um, is go to the second book quickly we don't have time right now because I've spent too much time again. Um, Dan's laughing. Got it. Um, our book 2, line 210. You remember Book 2 opens with Zeus sending Agamemnon on a false dream. Now that's interesting. He's the king. He, he's led to believe from the dream that they're going to be victorious. They have not won this war for nine and a half years His best soldier is out of the war, and he believes they're going to win. Is there anything closer to delusion in this book than that? Truly, I'm not, no it is. Mm -hmm. How much do people with big egos live in delusions? Man or woman, the vanity that we have, how, how much it blinds us and makes us see things that really aren't there. So he has this dream. He tests his men and said, we're all going home. And they all flee to the ships. It's not Agamemnon who brings them back, it's Odysseus. And Odysseus, it's interesting, I I don't have time to go through this, but it's interesting to see what he does. He takes all the lowborn, the common soldier, and he beats them. Beats them and says, Get back, what you coward, calls them coward. He takes all the nobles, the leaders, and he shames them with words. So Homer's showing us that there's a way to treat people differently according to their talents. We have to be harsher with some people than with others. More careful of some than others. Um, They call an assembly. Now this is the second assembly. What happened in the first one? A quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon. This violent quarrel broke out. This is the second one now. And on Book 2, Line 210, speaks up. Now the rest had sat down and were orderly in their places, but one man, Thersites of the endless speech, still scolded, who knew within his head many words, but disorderly. Homer is not talking about grammar. What he's saying is that something disorder in this man's soul because he speaks well. It's that what he speaks is disorderly. About Line 220. Beyond all others, Achilles hated him, and Odysseus, these two he was forever abusing, but now brilliant Agamemnon, he clashed the shrill of noise of his abuse. Achilles and Odysseus hated Thersites. What does that say about Thersites? Those are two of the greatest warriors there. Something wrong with Thersites, right? Um society speaks up. Son of Atreus, what thing further do you want or find fault with now? Your shelters are filled with bronze. There are plenty of choice, women, for you. Go down. Or is it still more gold you'll be wanting? Go down again. My good fools, poor abuses, you women, not men of Achaia. Let us go back home in our ships and leave this man here by himself in Troy to mull his prizes. Go down. But there's no gall in Achilles's heart. Is that true? Mm. Not even close. I mean, mm-hmm. if there's anything in his heart, his gall, he is filled with anger right now. There's no gall in Achilles' heart, and he's forgiving. Is that truthful? No. So um, Odysseus speaks up and says, There's no worse man among you. Down below 250, I assert there's no worse man than you are. Um, at 255, you argue nothing but scandal. If once more I find you playing the fool as you are now, nevermore let the head of Odysseus sit on his shoulders. He says he will strip him of his clothes and beat him to death, practically, if he ever speaks up like this again. Here's another assembly. Here's a man who speaks up against his king. And notice what he does. He, he's the kind of man who, woman, kind of man, he will always make the argument to the easier thing to do because most people will want to do the easier thing. If you got a choice between fighting a war and going home, which would you do? You go home. So, what he's doing is appealing to the difficult situation they're in, even though they've been here for nine and a half years. So, Homer's showing us dishonor that there's something at stake here. Achilles doesn't, or Thersites, does not want to risk it. So, he's using a reason to convince these men to say, Agamemnon's doing this for himself. He is doing it. So he speaks a lot of truth. But he's not doing it for the right reasons. Yeah? He's a cowardly man. We know that. We know that in ourselves. We know it in other people. So here's a second assembly in which there's this arguing, quarreling, abuse. Okay? Now going over... um, line 155 I want you to hold on to this too oh wait, this is in book three Um, look at the beginning of book three the very opening of book three now when the men of both sides were set in order by their leaders the Trojans came on with clamor and shouting like wild fowl because when the clamor or cranes go high to the... there's that simile, does everybody have it? Mm Um, the Trojans came on with clamor and shouting like wild fowl as when the clamor of cranes goes high to the heavens when the cranes escape the winter time and the rains unceasing and clamorously wing their way to the streaming ocean they're likened to river and cranes right bringing to the Pygmalion men bloodshed and destruction at daybreak they bring on the baleful battle against them but the Achaean men went silently breathing valor stubbornly minded each in his heart to stand by the other. They're so clearly different here. C.S. Lewis once said, and Lewis has been one of the greatest influences in my life. It's I'm not at ease differing with him, but I really do differ with him fundamentally here. Lewis said, and lots of critics say, there's no difference between the Trojans and the Achaeans. They're just there to kill each other out of some disorder. I don't believe that's true. And I want you to hold on to this line. Just remember the di- the, di- the the way Homer describes each army differently. What line is that? So it's the, the opening line. lines, well, we'll open the lines of book three. Well, opening lines of book okay. three. very first lines. <coughs> now when the men of both sides oh, are yeah. set in order. Okay. Now, going, now you know what happens in book three. Paris and Menelaus meet. Who are they? They're the principals. Okay. They're the ones the war is being fought over. So the first battle we get between the armies involves two principals. Homer's putting everything in order. He's showing us. They agree that whoever wins will take Helen and go home and the war will be over. The two men fight. Aphrodite intervenes. She breaks um, Paris' strap just when Menelaus is going to kill him and sweeps him off to Troy. That says something about Paris. I'm going to give you a quick reading just to offer you my... He's a man given to beauty... I'm going to read the, by the way, if you can read the Trojan legend that I gave you, that little handout. Next week I'm going to go over it quickly, but it'll give you the background story of the Trojan War. Paris chose, he, he was behind the conflict because he chose,